Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, my friends, the spooky season is upon us. It's well and truly not far from Halloween now, and I know many people in the U.S. and all over the world are already celebrating. Many people follow Halloween through the whole month of October and celebrate it in that time. So tonight we've got a very special bonus episode for you. I told you that I would have a story to read for you, and I've settled on what I think is an excellent short story by H.P. Lovecraft called The Lurking Fear. Now for those of you that don't know a whole lot about H.P. Lovecraft, that's alright, because tonight on The Paranormal Sun I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction before we get into the story, and then the story itself is about 45 minutes to an hour. So, don't get caught up too much if you don't know who H.P. Lovecraft was or if you don't know a whole lot about him because tonight I'm going to give you a crash course in H.P. Lovecraft who's one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. You have one very quick piece of general show business first. I just wanted to give you a little bit of an update about what's going on with episodes for the show. So, right now, tonight, it is the 22nd of October here. So, this weekend, I'll be continuing to work on part two of the Betty and Barney Hill case. I still don't know at this time if it's going to be only two episodes or if it's going to be three or more. So, we'll, we'll get that, uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But I'll be working on that. So, that should be out on Wednesday for your normal release. Sorry I missed this week's normal Wednesday release, but that's why I'm doing this uh, special bonus episode for you. And then uh, Halloween's coming up on the 31st, obviously, and sometime before Halloween, so probably the 29th or the 30th, my time, so in the U.S., just one day further ahead, so the 29th here is the 28th there, the 30th here is the 29th there. I will be having the second annual Halloween Spooktacular of the Paranormal Sun, and this time we'll be going through some of my stories and experiences of living in California and some of the things that I went through. Now, I have had a few people get in touch with me and say, hey, JT, what's the cutoff for our Halloween stories? Well, ideally, folks, like I say, we're sitting on the 22nd right now. If you want your story to be on that Halloween special, I would say you would want to get it to me no later than the 27th. Uh, so the 27th, Wednesday the 27th here, that's Tuesday the 26th in the U.S. So one, two, three, four, five days, basically. If you get it to me in that time, I'll read it on air. So, like I say, if you're still interested, if you'd still like me to read your listener stories or anything else on air, just let me know. If not, hey, that's fine. I'll dig up some other stuff from California to keep you interested. So that was it. I just wanted to give you a bit of an update on kind of what is the menu for the upcoming shows and when I'm going to release what. That's the plan right now. I've got a few interviews as well I'll be doing in that time, so it's going to be a very busy week and a half or so, but uh, hey, that's that's what it is. The pollen's back here, unfortunately, a lot of high winds, and also uh, the end of October around this time of year is always difficult because uh, someone who is very near and dear to me uh, their birthday was October the 20th, and it's always been difficult for me to spend October without uh, without my mom. So, uh, yeah, 
Uh, I, I miss her, and I know we all go through this in life, and I know it's part of life and everything else, but uh, I'm human just like everyone else, and we all have to grieve, and we all process things in our own way and at our own speed. So, with all of that being said, we're not going to do a News of the Dam tonight. I'm just going to give you a pretty brief overview of H.P. Lovecraft and his life. And I do think it is important that I address it because, as I've said before, there are people out there running around who act like H.P. Lovecraft was the Adolf Hitler of the literary world, and he was this super racist misogynist and everything else. And I just want to set the record straight as far as what is true about H.P. Lovecraft as far as what we know and what isn't true. Now, one interesting thing, in preparing for the episode, I wanted to, as I always do try to, and oftentimes when we're dealing with someone who's been passed away for, oh, let's see, uh, what, 70, 70 plus years now? When we're dealing with someone like that, oftentimes, oh yeah, well and truly more than 70 years, um, anyway, when we're dealing with someone who's been gone that long, uh, their works, uh, most of their works end up in the public domain. And so I can share those recordings and the like. And some others I just take a, how do we say, a calculated risk in releasing certain things because I just feel that you need to hear it. Well, anyway, believe it or not, there's no known recording of H.P. Lovecraft. No known recording of him talking about anything. Uh, there was apparently he made one recording, at least that we know of. He wrote in a letter that he made a recording of himself singing, but he dropped the record and broke it. So we don't know of any recording. Now, you can look around on the Internet and there are certain people who say, oh, this is an H.P. Lovecraft recording, but they're recreations or they're viral videos for movies and different things that have been put out. Anyway. I would have loved to have brought you the voice of the man himself, but I couldn't. Instead, I'm going to give you a good background on his life. Now, a good bit of this is from Wiki, and there's a link in the show notes as always, but uh, I just want to make sure that I cite the fact that most of this about his life really comes from Wiki. So, HP. What does HP stand for? No, not Hewlett-Packard. Howard Phillips. So it's Howard Phillips Lovecraft was his full name. He was born on August the 20th, 1890, and he passed away on March the 15th, 1937. So he was 46 years old when he passed away. He died fairly young, and I'll give you a quick summation about why at the end. But he was an American writer of weird science, fantasy, and horror fiction. Lovecraft is best known for his creation of a body of work that became known as the Cthulhu Mythos. Now, we've talked about it a few times on here especially when I talked about uh, Ponape and the Nanmadal ruins. We talked about Cthulhu and the mythos and Rulia and all of that. But anyway, he Philip uh, Howard, Howard Philip Lovecraft is very much like Vincent Van Gogh. In his time, he was respected by some of his fellow writers and some other people. But he was very much not well-known, and that's part of the reason why there aren't recordings, because you're not talking about someone who is super famous, and therefore people were going to him and wanting to record different things with him. I do believe in his life, the most he ever got paid for any piece of work that he published was $750. And by today's money, that would be a few thousand, so I think that off the top of my head, it's about six or $7,000 US. Which So you can see why the man lived in poverty for much of his life. 
So Lovecraft basically, he wasn't the first, but he was really the person who everyone coined the term when referring to his work. You're really talking about what they call cosmic horror. So we're talking about horror on a grand scale. And I'll explain a bit more of that as we get into this. So it says, Lovecraft's literary corpus is based around the idea of cosmicism, which was simultaneously his personal philosophy and the main theme of his fiction. According to his philosophy, humanity was an unimportant part of an uncaring cosmos that could be swept away at any moment. To support this point, his stories include fantastic and science fiction elements that represented the perceived fragility of anthrop of anthro uh, <laughs> of anthropocentrism. Anthropocentrism. Sorry, I've never seen that word before. Having an interest in scientific discoveries, he incorporated then-current scientific discoveries into his stories. These stories generally take place in a fictionalized version of New England, and that fictionalized area has been referred to as Lovecraft Country. I'm pretty sure most of you would have heard that name, and I will get back into that shortly. Civilizational decline also plays a major role in his works, as he believed that the West was in decline during his lifetime. So Lovecraft was very much a pessimist about the world in general and about humanity's standing in the universe. So can you see why JT would be drawn towards Lovecraftian works and why people like Charles Fort would be as well now? I think that Charles Fort had already passed away by the time most of Lovecraft's work was coming out. But that whole, the hubris of humankind, um, H.P. Lovecraft basically looks at it as we're just insects. We're not even insects, we're just bacteria in the grand scheme of things. That is in his mythos. In 1902, Lovecraft was introduced to space, so outer space. He later described this event as the most poignant moment in his life. In response to this discovery, Lovecraft took to studying astronomy and described his observations in the local newspaper. Before his 13th birthday, he had become convinced of humanity's impermanence. By the time he was 17, he had read detailed writings and agreed with his he had read detailed writings that agreed with his worldview. Lovecraft ceased writing positively about progress, instead developing his latter cosmic philosophy. Despite his interests in science, he had an aversion to realistic literature, so he became interested in fantastical fiction. Throughout his adult life, Lovecraft was never able to support himself from earnings as an author and editor. He was virtually unknown during his lifetime and was almost exclusively published in pulp magazines before his death, but he is now regarded as one of the most significant 20th century authors of supernatural horror fiction, or authors in general, I would argue. Okay, now this is the controversial part, and this is the part where people always get a bit tender about H.P. Lovecraft, because we do live very much in that whatever you want to call it, woke state, cancel culture, everything else. So anything that has to do with terms of per perceived racism or misogynism, anything like that, tends to draw a lot of flack. So racism is the most controversial aspect of Lovecraft's legacy, expressed in many disparaging remarks against non-Anglo-Saxon races and cultures in his works. 
Now, for those of you who've heard the term Anglo-Saxon but may not know what he's talking about, basically English. So not just white, not just European, but English European, English speaking, and specifically people from the British Isles. And again, in some of his writings, like the Moonbog, for example, he doesn't even spare the Irish or the Scots. So it's not, it's, he's, he's very specific in what he holds up as the ideal human, especially early in his life. As he grew older, his original racial worldview became a classism or elitism, which regarded the superior race to include all those self-ennobled through high culture. From the start, Lovecraft did not hold all white people in uniform high regard, as I've said, but rather esteemed English people and those of English descent. In his early, in his early published essays, private letters, and personal utterances, he argued for a strong color line to preserve race and culture. His arguments were supported using disparagements of various races in journalism and letters, and allegorically in his fictional works that depict non-human races. This is evident in his portrayal of the Deep Ones and the Shadow over Innsmouth. Their interbreeding with humanity is framed as being a type of, uh, let's see, miscegenation that corrupts both the town of Innsmouth and the protagonist. Initially, Lovecraft showed sympathy to minorities who adopted Western culture, even to the extent of marrying a Jewish woman he viewed as being well assimilated. By the 1930s, Lovecraft's views on ethnicity and race had moderated. He supported ethnicities preserving their native cultures. For example, he thought that a real friend of civilization wishes merely to make the Germans more German, the French more French, the Spaniards more Spanish, and so on. This represented a shift from his previous support for cultural assimilation. However, this did not represent a complete elimination of his racial prejudices. Authors have argued that Lovecraft's racial, racial attitudes were common in the society of his day particularly in the New England in which he grew up. And, folks, there's no argument. It's 100% true. Again, on this program, we tend not to go down really divisive rabbit holes of race, religion, politics, but it's a fact, okay? In the, 19, in the early 1900s and late 1800s, uh, so going into the time that Lovecraft was raised and went to school and everything else, white people were told, you know, and especially English descendants, people who had been in America for a long time, not just recent arrivals, they were told they were better than everyone else. This is not a mystery. And I'm not trying to excuse any racist views or racist worldviews, but Lovecraft's viewpoints at the time were nothing outside of the norm. This is what nearly every especially English-speaking native-tongue English speaker, and especially those people from the northeastern part of the U.S., and people from families that were a bit more aristocratic or well-educated, believed and were taught that they were basically the shining light of human civilization. Now, with all that being said, like I say, I don't excuse anyone's racism or classism. But one of the things that really changed Lovecraft's mind about this was during the Great Depression, he thought that these wealthy elite shining lights of civilization would come forward and sort things out and fix the country and fix what was going on and all the people starving and everything else. And guess what? It didn't happen. 
And then Lovecraft went back and went, hmm, maybe these people aren't such shining examples of the perfect humans after all. And as I've said, it is a theme on the paranormal sun and on the fortunate sun that I've covered many, many times. The truth is, there is no grand establishment, superior class above any of us that's going to look out after all of us and has the best intentions for us. It's just not true. That's, that is a realization that I've come through in over 40 plus years of life, getting to know very well hundreds of people and some of those people very well connected people in government and business and everything else for 40, 50 plus years. It's just, they don't care. In general, the these people at the very top of the food chain, be they politicians, be they wealthy families whose money goes back thousands of years, be they politicians, whatever the case may be, they don't care about you and I. That is the reality. So when H.P. Lovecraft had a bit of an epiphany towards that, he wrote in many of his later correspondences how sorry he felt that he looked down on his fellow humans. Now, again, you can argue that this is just what he was taught, but he definitely believed it, okay, especially when he was younger. One of his stories that's really over the top is called The Horror at Red Hook. And when I say over the top, in the way that he talks about people from the Middle East and people from countries like, um, I'm trying to think, Syria, Lebanon, places like that. The way that he writes in that story, it's really dehumanizing, okay? So I'm not giving him any free passes here. All I'm trying to say is take into context the era the man was born and lived in. And because of some of the people in my life that I've known that were born and grew up not long after that in the 20s and 30s, it was a completely different time to the way the world is now. And again, I'm not excusing them. I'm just saying that at that time, no one argued the fact that whites were superior to anyone else or Europeans had a right to rule America and they had a manifest destiny. It was just considered a fact, okay? There were very, very few people who had anything to say contrary to that. And those people were obviously shouted down. So again, we're not giving them a free pass. I'm just saying, try and understand the context of the time that people were born into. And as I say, a lot, I don't want to speak for everyone out there. And of course, yes, there are things that people do now that 100 years ago may have been acceptable and now they're horrific. Yeah, I look, I fully get that. I, I do understand that. But again, to basically want to tear down someone's works, all of their works, based on that, to me, is just ridiculous. Because again, I am a strong student of history, and I firmly believe in that old saying that those who fail to, you know, paraphrase, those who, who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. And I do think that it's very important that we weigh these things up and that as with all of us, we're all human, and we all have really negative things about us. I feel there are very few people that I've ever met that don't have some really negative things, myself included, and I've aired most of them on this program. Some of the things I've done in my life I'm not proud of, and I think that most of us 
especially those of us that are older. I think that most of us have things we can look back at and say, wow, I really wish I wouldn't have done that. But that is part of learning in life. And so Lovecraft definitely learned as he aged. And again, he didn't even make it to 50, but he already had those regrets and he already had some of those feelings that he wished he wouldn't have been that way. But it is what it is. I just wanted to contextualize some of the things that have been said about Lovecraft. Now he needs to be canceled and all of his work and blah, 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 and give you a bit more of the reality check of when and how he was raised. And again, not making excuses, just stating facts, okay? Now, when we start talking about H.P. Lovecraft and why he's so well-known, well, I'll tell you, folks, you could not believe the amount of people, millions and millions of people, who have been influenced and impacted by the works of H.P. Lovecraft. As I say, a very distinct corollary in my mind is Vincent van Gogh, because it was August Derelith, I want to say, off the top of my head. August Derelith is the man who basically took Lovecraft's works after he passed away and started republishing in them and getting them out there for people to enjoy. And so if it wasn't for August Derelith, H.P. Lovecraft may have been one of the quote-unquote lost masters, but very much like Vincent van Gogh, he was only really well-known and became famous after his death, and well after his death. We're talking about the really the late 60s before he really got well-known. I mean, yeah, there were some people picking it up in the 50s, but you know, at the best, we're talking about 20-plus years after the man died before he really got quote-unquote discovered. But some of the famous writers that have been heavily influenced by Lovecraft are Stephen King, may have heard of him, eh? Ramsey Campbell, and Alan Moore. So Alan Moore of the Watchmen series. Now, also, Mike Mignola. So ever since the introduction of the character Hellboy for Dark Horse Comics in 1993, the heavy influence of H.P. Lovecraft in Mike Mignola's work has been readily apparent. Now, I know that our chapter president in Illinois, Chris... I know that he read the Hellboy comics when we were in school. I didn't really read the comics, but I saw the films. And like uh, in the first film, uh, the one that had Ron Perlman in it, and they had those giant snakes or worms, whatever they were. You see a creature like that, and I instantly think of H.P. Lovecraft, or when they kept showing kind of the flashing other dimension and those giant creatures that were ruling the world hp lovecraft all over it okay now lovecraft also directly influenced hr geiger's iconic design for the alien movies and inspired john carpenter's creation the thing so john carpenter has said repeatedly how much hp lovecraft has in, has had an influence on his works now as i say in hellboy acclaimed director guillermo del toro has been has cited Lovecraft as a major influence on his career. And one of the things that I've been really disappointed about was that there was talk about them making a big, big-budget movie about uh, At the Mountains of Madness, which is one of Lovecraft's longer and better-written works, I think. Really does an excellent job of the suspension of the horror element and everything else and building it up. And there was talk of him doing this movie that was going to be several million, several hundred million dollars budget. And they just fiddled around and fiddled around and it never happened. And he's had other projects and 
He's basically said, I'm not going to say never, but it's not going to be in the near future, which is really sad to me because there has not been a big budget, straight up adaption of Lovecraft that has really become a big hit or has been done well. Now, there are people out there would say Lovecraft's works can't be adapted to the screen, but I would argue with that. I remember growing up hearing the same thing about J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, Lord of the Rings. Oh, they'll never make Lord of the Rings movies because they can't adapt it to the big screen. And uh, what was what was it? Two or three billion dollars between the three Lord of the Rings films and the Hobbit films. So that goes to show you that, yes, it can happen. And I do hold out hope that in my lifetime, there will be something like uh, Call of Cthulhu or uh, any any of the great films, Whisper and Darkness. Me personally, one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. I'd love to see something like that or Mountains of Madness released in the big screen theaters. I don't go and watch a lot of movies, but if something like that comes out and it's got good reviews, I'll be out there to see it. Now, Roger Corman. Now, he's known for his uncountable B-movies and the help he had in jump-starting the careers of Hollywood stars like Dennis Hopper, David Carradine, and Jack Nicholson, just to name a few. He was he's said time and time again how much Lovecraft influenced his works. Now other films that mention Lovecraft or elements of his works include Army of Darkness, The Necronomicon of course, The Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2. Now there are many other movies, but those are the biggest movies that you may have heard of. Now TV programs that mention Lovecraft or elements of his work. Babylon 5, Dark Shadows, Monsters, Hercules the Legendary Journeys, believe it or not, Night Gallery, the real Ghostbusters cartoon that came out when I was a kid, and then music. He's had a huge influence on music, believe it or not. Metallica alone have three songs inspired by his works. One is called The Call of Cthulhu, but it's not spelled like Cthulhu. It's spelled K-T-U-L-U, and it's an instrumental piece. And I remember when I first heard that on Ride the Lightning, thinking, wow, that's that's a really weird title for a song. And at that time, I really didn't know as much about Lovecraft because I was just a teenager. But as time went on, it was obvious to me what he was talking about. Now, on the third album, Master of Puppets, and I listened to this song over and over and over because it's a great song, and it's called uh, The Thing That's That Should Not Be, and it's basically based on Cthulhu. And then finally on Death Magnetic, which came out in 2008, they have a song called All Nightmare Long, and that's also based on Lovecraft. Now, Black Sabbath, one of my favorite bands of all time. Easily in JT's Mount Rushmore of rock bands is Black Sabbath. Now, Black Sabbath's first album was called Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Now, it derived its name from the 1919 story, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. So, very interesting how tied in many of these things are. Now, another band that if all of the music out there was free to use and I could use it liberally in the program, this is a band that you would have heard a lot of their music by now, and that's Blue Oyster Cult, or BOC. Now, they did ETI, which was Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and that made reference to The King in Yellow, which is a... It's it's a Robert Chambers story called The King in Yellow, but it's got a tie-in with Haster and Lovecraft. 
They did another one called I Am the One You Warned Me Of. The story Wisdom is mentioned in that. Less Invisibles. The reference to Beneath the Polar Mountain may be a reference to Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Also, the lyrics The Empress Lay Sleeping to the Rhyme of the Star Clock may refer to the return of the Great Old Ones. And then in the presence of another world, the phrase, when the stars are right, is spoken. Now, for those of you who don't know, these cosmic beings, these these great old ones, and these gods that we can't comprehend as humans, it's said that basically they can't come into our world or dimension until the stars are right. And so there's a lot of reference about that, when the stars are right, when the stars are right. And um, I don't want to get too far off topic. I just want to finish up these other musical influences. But there's a podcast called Tannis. Very good podcast. It's from Minnow Beats Whale, I believe, is the name of the publication company. Really well done. And they have pretty heavy tie-ins with the stars being right. And the same idea. Now, okay, so the siege and investiture of Baron von Frankenstein's castle at Wasseria, the story wisdom, is again mentioned. Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden also had heavy influences from Lovecraft, and they've talked about it in later interviews. Now, this one's ironic, because Lovecraft believed that people who played a lot of games were dull-witted. They didn't have a lot of brains for doing other things like writing or reading poetry, etc., but he's had a huge influence in the gaming world. So even the world of tabletop role-playing games have some major influences from the master of cosmic horror. Gary Gygax, the co-creator of the popular D&D series of games, which stands for Dungeons & Dragons, previously cited Lovecraft's works as one of several inspirations for the game in the Advanced D&D Dungeon Master's Guide, and I remember reading that in the guide. Now... There is a, it wasn't, I thought it was rare for a long time because there's always, you always hear these urban legends about certain things being rare. So there was a, um, there, there were some monster manuals of D&D printed that had the Greek pantheon of gods, the, uh, I think it was the Greeks, the, uh, maybe, um, like the Celtic, I can't remember all the pantheons. But one of the pantheons mentioned was the Cthulhu mythos, and they had hit points and stats and all that for all these Cthulhu and Yog sothoth and all of these other creatures. But anyway, they thought that it was, they basically thought that no one had the copyright of these, but they did. And they basically had to pull these books from the shelf. You can still find them. They're not that rare out there, but I mean... The basically the names of the creatures from Lovecraft backgrounds from Lovecraft stories in the book. So there's no doubt he had a major influence. Then you've also got these creatures of cosmic origin in D&D called Abelis that li live in the deep ocean. Which basically, it's right down to Cthulhu and the Cthulhu spawn. It's pretty much uh, an homage to them. And then you've got all kinds of people, like you have uh, George R. R. Martin also, I know. There are certain areas in the World of Ice and Fire series, for those of you who haven't read the books, Game of Thrones, there are different areas discussed on the map that are direct homages to Lovecraft. Now, 
I don't know if we'll ever in the books, if they'll ever go and explore these areas and I would doubt it, but they're just names on the map. So I've just taken a second to time travel into the future and get some of those locations for you. And there are many more than this, but uh, on the map, you've got Lang, which is a Lovecraft area, the Plateau of Lang, Sarnath, Ib, Carcosa, Kadath, the Church or the Cult of Starry Wisdom, the Deep Ones, the Drowned God. All of those are direct references to Lovecraft. I mean, it's 99.9% .9 sure that, uh, and some of those are definitely Lovecraft only. So yeah, it's really interesting how much of a tip of the cap that Mr. Martin has included in his world building. Now, as far as other games go, besides the D&D tie-ins, there's a very successful role-playing tabletop game called Call of Cthulhu, and there are all kinds of different tie-ins and campaigns where you can basically do campaigns all the way back to Roman times at least, and maybe earlier, I'm not sure, all the way into outer space. So you can do all times. Uh, you can focus on the 20s and 30s of kind of the Lovecraft-inspired stories, or you can go way back in time into the future. And that, uh, I believe, uh, Call of Cthulhu was first published in 1983. Then you've got a PC game called Alone in the Dark from 1992, and that had many direct references and obvious imitations of Lovecraft's style of storytelling. Some more modern games are Bloodborne and The Sinking City, and they're both very heavy with Lovecraftian lore and elements. So I guess when we boil it all down and we ask, who was H.P. Lovecraft and why is he so important? It's down to that. I mean, there is not basically a genre of modern life that he hasn't touched in some way. I mean, he's definitely been involved in Doctor Who, like a lot of the cosmic horror uh, writings from Doctor Who have, have been H.P. Lovecraft-inspired things, and it's just on and on and on. And some of these things he's touched are, again, huge um, franchises in their own right. Things like Hellboy, things like Doctor Who, and then those touch more and more people who don't even know they're inspired by Lovecraft. So it just goes to show, I mean, this man has had a massive impact on pop culture, especially in the Western world, for the last 50, 60, 70 years. It is astounding how much he has shaped the world, especially of fiction and movie, films. And if you could somehow bring him back from the afterlife, he'd probably be shocked about the impact that he has had. So again, just wrapping up on his life really shortly, Lovecraft did not have a, by any means, he did not have a comfortable life. He struggled with some issues, mental issues that his mother also had. Uh, he didn't know his father very well. His father died at a very young age. And there's differing stories about how and why his dad died from the fact that he went crazy from having syphilis to uh, that he just got killed by someone. So he didn't have a very easy life. And he definitely didn't do well financially. Probably the happiest days of his life was when he was young and his mother and him moved in with his grandfather, who was a multimillionaire at the time and had a huge house with a bunch of books, thousands of books in his library and everything else. And Howard had the run of this house. 
But then talking about the stars not being right, I mean, this man was just fate kissed. And in around 1900, so when Howard was about 10 years old, his grandfather's financial dealings started taking a downturn. In 1904, basically his business failed and he had to sell the house and Howard lost the library and everything else and the home that he loved. And from that point on, he had a very difficult life. He was married to a Sonia Green, who I talked about a little bit in the intro stuff. That is his Jewish wife, as discussed. And they didn't really have a close marriage as far as physicality. And he lived away from her for many years as he wrote these different books and stories. But yeah, he, he never had more than menial amounts of property and things to his name. As far as I know, he never owned a house. He may have inherited one of the family homes, but I don't think so. And he rued the day that he moved from Providence in Rhode Island, where he was born and raised. And he was he seemed to be a man forever looking for a way back home, if that makes sense. He just never seemed to fit in in the outside world. Now, he did become very close friends with some other authors who are well-known, probably chief among them being uh, Robert Howard, who is the man who wrote Conan, among other books. Robert Howard also had his own mental illnesses and passed away at a young age. Also, Robert Block, he mentored Robert Block. Robert Block is the man who wrote what would later become the movie Psycho, among other stories, and on and on. I mean, he really did have an influence at the time. But yeah, he lived a very frugal life. He ate most of his food uh, canned, so he ate a lot of canned goods. He didn't get good nutrition, and they basically believe that this led to his poor health and why he died at an early age was that he got ill and his body just couldn't recover from it. I can't remember exactly what it was, but yeah, basically he passed away at the age of 46. So that gives you a good background on H.P. Lovecraft. Now, the story that I'm going to read for you tonight is a story called The Lurking Fear. So this came out when, well, Howard wrote it when he was about 32. So he wrote it in November of 1922, and it was first published in January through April 1923 in issues of Homebrew Magazine. Now, Homebrew Magazine was a bit of a comedy magazine, but most of his stuff was published in serial editions in these different pulp magazines like Strange Tales and things like that. And so what serialized means, folks, is it's like episodic. So he didn't write the whole story and release it. He wrote and broke it up into four or five or more chapters, and he would release one each month or each publication, whatever the basically whatever the publication wanted because they were the ones buying his stories. So I'm going to read for you The Lurking Fear which, again, it's one of his earlier works. It's before Cthulhu and some of his more famous works, but I do think it does a good job striking that cosmic horror and the there's much more to this world than what we know of and what science can explain or understand. Now, unfortunately, I don't have any really good sound effects or anything for this, so I do apologize. It's just going to be me reading it. But I do hope that you enjoy this story from H.P. Lovecraft called The Lurking Fear. I think it's a great place to start in your Lovecraft journey if you've never heard of him before. So go away, get yourself a drink, be it an adult beverage or a cup of coffee or tea or whatever you enjoy, 
And if you want to get some snacks, something to enjoy and sit back and relax, this is an excellent Halloween story. So sit back, relax, folks, and I'm going to read for you The Lurking Fear by H.P. Lovecraft. And there is a link in the show notes to all of this and also where you can go and find the story for yourself. So I am about to dim the lights and read this by Candlelight in Tower Studios. I do hope you enjoy. And once I finish the story, that's going to be it. So there won't be a wrap up at the end. And I will talk to you early next week. The Lurking Fear by H.P. Lovecraft 1. The Shadow on the Chimney There was thunder in the air on the night that I went to the deserted mansion atop Tempest Mountain to find the lurking fear. I was not alone, for foolhardiness was not then mixed with that love of the grotesque and the terrible which has made my career a series of quests for strange horrors in literature and in life. With me were two faithful and muscular men, for whom I had sent when the time came, men long associated with me in my ghastly explorations, because of their peculiar fitness. We had started quietly from the village, because of the reporters who still lingered about, after the eldritch panic of a month before, the nightmare creeping death. Later I thought they might aid me, but I did not want them then. Would to God I had let them share the search, that I might not have had to bear the secret alone so long. To bear it alone for fear the world would call me mad, or go mad itself, at the demonic implications of the thing. Now that I am telling it anyway, lest the brooding make me a maniac, I wish I had never concealed it, for I, and I only, know what manner of fear lurked on that spectral and desolate mountain. In a small motor car we covered the miles of, prim of primeval forest and hill until the wooded ascent checked it. The country bore an aspect more than usually sinister as we viewed it by night and without the accustomed crowds of investigators, so that we were often tempted to use the acetylene headlights despite the attention it might attract. It was not a wholesome landscape after dark, and I believe I would have noticed its morbidity even had I been ignorant of the terror that stalked there. Of wild creatures there were none. They are wise when death leers close. The ancient lightning-scarred trees seemed unnaturally large and twisted, and the other vegetation unnaturally thick and feverish, while curious mounds and hummocks in the weedy, fulgurite-pitted earth reminded me of snakes and dead men's skulls swelled to gigantic proportions. Fear had lurked on Tempest Mountain for more than a century. This I learned at once from newspaper accounts of the catastrophe which first brought the region to the world's notice. The place is a remote, lonely elevation in that part of the Catskills where Dutch civilization once feebly and transiently penetrated, leaving behind, as it receded, only a few ruined mansions and a degenerate squatter population inhabiting pitiful hamlets on isolated slopes. Normal beings seldom visited the location till the state police were formed, and even now only infrequent troopers patrol it. The fear, however, is an old tradition throughout the neighboring villages. Since it is a prime topic in the simple discourse of the poor mongrels who sometimes leave their valleys to trade hand-woven baskets for such primitive necessities as they cannot shoot, raise, or make. The lurking fear dwelt in the shunned and deserted Martens mansion, which crowned the high but gradual eminence, whose liability to frequent thunderstorms gave it the name of Tempest Mountain.
For over a hundred years, the antique, grove-circled stone house had been the subject of stories, incredibly wild and monstrously hideous. Stories of a silent, colossal creeping death, which stalked abroad in summer. With whimpering insistence, the squatters told tales of a demon, which seized lone wayfarers after dark, either carrying them off or leaving them in a frightful state of gnawed dismemberment, while sometimes they whispered of blood trails towards the distant mansion. Some said the thunder called the lurking fear out of its habitation, while others said the thunder was its voice. No one outside the backwoods had believed these varying and conflicting stories, with their incoherent, extravagant descriptions of the half-glimpsed fiend, Yet not a farmer or villager doubted that the Martens mansion was ghoulishly haunted. Local history forbade such a doubt, although no ghostly evidence was ever found by such investigators as had visited the building after some especially vivid tale of the squatters. Grandmothers told strange myths of the Martens specter, misconcerning the Martens family itself, its queer hereditary dissimilarity of eyes, its long unnatural annals, and the murder which had cursed it. The terror which brought me to the scene was a sudden and portentous confirmation of the mountaineer's wildest legends. One summer night, after a thunderstorm of unprecedented violence, the countryside was aroused by a squatter stampede, which no more delusion could create. The pitiful throngs of natives shrieked and whined of the unnameable horror which had descended upon them, and they were not doubted. They had not seen it, but had heard such cries from one of their hamlets that they knew a creeping death had come. In the morning, citizens and state troopers followed the shuddering mountaineers to the place where they said the death had come. Death was indeed there. The ground under one of the squatters' villages had caved in after a lightning stroke, destroying several of the malodorous shanties. But upon this property, damage was superimposed and organic devastation which paled it to insignificance. Of a possible 75 natives who had inhabited this spot, not one living specimen was visible. The disordered earth was covered with blood, and human debris bespecked too vividly the ravages of demons' teeth and talons, yet no visible trail led away from the carnage. That some hideous animal must be the cause, everyone quickly agreed. Nor did any tongue now revive the charge that such cryptic deaths form merely the sordid murders common in decadent communities. That charge was revived only when about 25 of the estimated population were found, missing from the dead, and even then it was hard to explain the murder of 50 by half that number. But the fact remained that on a summer night, a bolt had come out of the heavens and left a dead village whose corpses were horribly mangled, chewed, and clawed. The excited countryside immediately connected the horror with the haunted Martens mansion, though the localities were over three miles apart. The troopers were more skeptical, including the mansion only casually in their investigations, and dropping it altogether when they found it thoroughly deserted. Country and village people, however, canvassed the place with infinite care, overturning everything in the house, sounding ponds and brooks, beating down bushes, and ransacking the nearby forests. All was in vain. The death that had come had left no trace save destruction itself. By the second day of the search, the affair was fully treated by the newspapers, whose reporters overran Tempest Mountain. 
They described it in much detail and with many interviews to elucidate the horror's history as told by local grandams. I followed the accounts languidly at first, for I am a connoisseur in horrors, but after a week I detected an atmosphere which stirred me oddly, so that on August the 5th, 1921, I registered among the reporters who crowded the hotel at Lefferts Corners, nearest village to Tempest Mountain, and acknowledged headquarters of the searchers. Three weeks more, and the dispersal of the reporters left me free to begin a terrible exploration based on the minute inquiries and surveying with which I had meanwhile busied myself. So on this summer night, while distant thunder rumbled, I left a silent motor car and tramped with two armed companions up the last mound-covered reaches of Tempest Mountain, casting the beams of an electric torch on the spectral gray walls that began to appear through giant oaks ahead. In this morbid night solitude and feeble shifting illumination, the vast box-like pile displayed obscure hints of terror, which day could not uncover. Yet I did not hesitate, since I had come with fierce resolution to test an idea. I believe that the thunder called the death demon out of some fearsome secret place, and be that demon, solid entity, or vaporous pestilence, I meant to see it. I had thoroughly searched the ruin before, hence knew my plan well, choosing as the seat of my vigil the old room of Jan Martens, whose murder looms so great in the rural legends. I felt subtly that the apartment of this ancient victim was best for my purposes. The chamber, measuring about twenty feet square, contained like the other rooms some rubbish which had once been furniture. It lay on the second story, on the southeast corner of the house, and had an immense east window and narrow south window, both devoid of panes or shutters. Opposite the large window was an enormous Dutch fireplace with scriptural tiles representing the prodigal son, and opposite the narrow window was a spacious bed built into the wall. As the tree-muffled thunder grew louder, I arranged my plan's details. First, I fastened side by side to the ledge of the large window three rope ladders which I had brought with me. I knew they reached a suitable spot on the grass outside, for I had tested them. Then the three of us dragged from another room a wide, four-poster bedstead, crowding in laterally against the window. Having strewn it with fir boughs, all now rested on it with drawn automatics, two relaxing while the third watched. From whatever direction the demon might come, our potential escape was provided. If it came from within the house, we had the window ladders. If from outside, the door and the stairs. We did not think, judging from precedence, that it would pursue us far, even at worst. I watched from midnight to one o'clock, when in spite of the sinister house, the unprotected window, and the approaching thunder and lightning, I felt singularly drowsy. I was between my two companions, George Bennett being toward the window, and William Toby toward the fireplace. Bennett was asleep, having apparently felt the same anomalous drowsiness which affected me, so I designated Toby for the next watch, although even he was nodding. It is curious how intently I had been watching that fireplace. The increasing thunder must have affected my dreams, for in the brief time I slept, there came to me apocalyptic visions. Once I partly awakened, probably because the sleeper toward the window had restlessly flung an arm across my chest. 
I was not sufficiently awake to see whether Toby was attending to his duties as sentinel, but felt a distinct anxiety on that score. Never before had the presence of evil so poignantly oppressed me. Later I must have dropped asleep again, for it was out of a phantasmal chaos that my mind leaped when the night grew hideous with shrieks beyond anything in my former experience or imagination. In that shrieking, the inmost soul of human fear and agony clawed hopelessly and insanely at the ebony gates of oblivion. I awoke to red madness and the mockery of diabolism. As farther and farther down inconceivable vistas, that phobic and crystalline anguish retreated and reverberated. There was no light, but I knew from the empty space at my right that Toby was gone. God alone knew whither. Across my chest still lay the heavy arm of the sleeper at my left. Then came the devastating stroke of lightning which shook the whole mountain, lit the darkest crypts of the hoary grove, and splintered the patriarch of the twisted trees. In the demon flash of a monstrous fireball, the sleeper started up suddenly, while the glare from beyond the window threw his shadow vividly upon the chimney above the fireplace from which my eyes had never strayed. That I am still alive and sane is a marvel I cannot fathom. I cannot fathom it, for the shadow on that chimney was not that of George Bennett or of any other human creature, but a blasphemous abnormality from hell's nethermost craters, a nameless, shapeless abomination which no mind could fully grasp and no pen even partly describe. In another second I was alone in the accursed mansion, shivering and gibbering. George Bennett and William Toby had left no trace, not even of a struggle. They were never heard of again. 2. A Passer in the Storm For days after that hideous experience in the forest-swathed mansion, I lay nervously exhausted in my hotel room at Lefferts Corners. I do not remember exactly how I managed to reach the motor car, start it, and slip unobserved back to the village, for I retained no distinct impression save a wild-armed titan trees, demoniac mutterings of thunder, and Charonian shadows athwart the low mounds that dotted and streaked the region. As I shivered and brooded on the casting of that brain-blasting shadow, I knew that I had, at last, pried out one of Earth's supreme horrors, one of those nameless blights of outer voids whose faint demon scratchings we sometimes hear on the furthest rim of space, yet from which our own finite vision has given us a merciful immunity. The shadow I had seen, I hardly dared to analyze or identify. Something had lain between me and the window that night. But I shuddered whenever I could not cast off the instinct to classify it. If it had only snarled, or bayed, or laughed titteringly, even that would have relieved the abysmal hideousness. But it was so silent, it had rested a heavy arm, or foreleg, on my chest. Obviously it was organic, or had once been organic. Jan Martens, whose room I had invaded, was buried in the graveyard near the mansion. I must find Bennett and Toby, if they lived. Why had it picked them, and left me for the last? Drowsiness is so stifling, and the dreams are so horrible. In a short time I realized that I must tell my story to someone, or break down completely. I had already decided not to abandon the quest for the lurking fear, for in my rash ignorance it seemed to me that uncertainty was worse than enlightenment, however terrible the latter might prove to be. Accordingly, I resolved in my mind 
the best course to pursue, whom to select for my confidences, and how to track down the thing which had obliterated two men and cast a nightmare shadow. My chief acquaintances at Lefford's Corners had been the affable reporters, of whom several still remained to collect final echoes of the tragedy. It was from these that I determined to choose a colleague, and the more I reflected, the more my preference inclined towards one Arthur Monroe, a dark, lean man of about thirty-five, whose education, taste, intelligence, and temperament all seemed to mark him as one not bound to conventional ideas and experiences. On an afternoon in early September, Arthur Monroe listened to my story. I saw from the beginning that he was both interested and sympathetic, and when I had finished he analyzed and discussed the thing with the greatest shrewdness and judgment. His advice, moreover, was eminently practical, for he recommended a postponement of operations at the Martens Mansion until we might become fortified with more detailed historical and geographical data. On his initiative, we combed the countryside for information regarding the terrible Martens family, and we discovered a man who possessed a marvelously illuminating ancestral diary. We also talked at length with such of the mountain mongrels as had not fled from terror and confusion to remoter slopes, and arranged to proceed our culminating task, the exhaustive and definitive examination of the mansion, in the light of its detailed history, with an equally exhaustive and definitive examination of spots associated with the various tragedies of squatter legend. The results of this examination were not at first very enlightening, though our tabulation of them seemed to reveal a fairly significant trend, namely that the number of reported horrors was by far the greatest in areas either comparatively near the avoided house or connected with it by stretches of the morbidly overnourished forest. There were, it is true, exceptions. Indeed, the horror which had caught the world's ear had happened in a treeless space, remote alike from the mansion and from any connecting woods. As to the nature and appearance of the lurking fear, nothing could be gained from the scared and witless shanty dwellers. In the same breath, they called it a snake and a giant, a thunder devil and a bat, a vulture and a walking tree. We did, however, deem ourselves justified in assuming that it was a living organism highly susceptible to electrical storms, and although certain of the stories suggested wings, we believe that its aversion for open spaces made land locomotion a more probable theory. The only thing really incompatible with the latter view was the rapidity with which the creature must have traveled in order to perform all the deeds attributed to it. When we came to know the squatters better, we found them curiously likable in many ways. Simple animals they were, gently descending the evolutionary scale because of their unfortunate ancestry and stultifying isolation. They feared outsiders, but slowly grew accustomed to us, finally helping vastly when we beat down all the thickets and tore out all the partitions of the mansion in our search for the lurking fear. When we asked us to help find Bennett and Toby, they were truly distressed, for they wanted to help us, yet knew that these victims had gone as wholly out of the world as their own missing people, that great numbers of them had actually been killed and removed just as the wild animals had long been exterminated. We were, of course, thoroughly convinced, and we waited apprehensively for further tragedies to occur. By the middle of October, we were puzzled by our lack of progress. Owing to the clear nights, 
no demoniac aggressions had taken place, and the completeness of our vain searches of house and country almost drove us to regard the lurking fear as a non-material agency. We feared that the cold weather would come on us and halt our explorations, for all agreed that the demon was generally quiet in winter. Thus there was a kind of haste and desperation in our last daylight canvas of the horror-visited hamlet, a hamlet now deserted because of the squatter's fear. The ill-fated squatter hamlet had borne no name, but had long stood in a sheltered, though treeless cleft, between two elevations called respectively Cone Mountain and Maple Hill. It was closer to Maple Hill than to Cone Mountain, some of the crude abodes indeed being dugouts on the side of the former eminence. Geographically, it lay about two miles northwest of the base of Tempest Mountain, and three miles from the Oak Girt Mansion. Of the distance between the hamlet and the mansion, fully two miles and a quarter on the hamlet side was entirely open country, the plain being of fairly level character, save for some of the low, snake-like mounds, and having as vegetation only grass and scattered weeds. Considering this topography, we had finally concluded that the demon must have come by way of Cone Mountain, a wooded, southern prolongation which ran to within a short distance of the westernmost spur of Tempest Mountain. The upheaval of ground we traced conclusively to a landslide from Maple Hill, a tall, lone, splintered tree on whose side had been the striking point of the thunderbolt which summoned the fiend. As for the twentieth time or more, Arthur Monroe and I went minutely over every inch of the violated village, we were filled with a certain discouragement coupled with vague and novel fears. It was acutely uncanny, even when frightful and uncanny things were common, to encounter so blankly clueless a scene after such overwhelming occurrences, and we moved from beneath the leaden, darkening sky with that tragic, directionless zeal which results from a combined sense of futility and necessity of action. Our care was gravely minute. Every cottage was again entered. Every hillside dug out again searched for bodies. Every thorny foot of adjacent slope again scanned for dens and caves, but all without result. And yet, as I have said, vague new fears hovered menacingly over us, as if giant bat-winged griffins squatted invisibly on the mountaintops and leered with abandoned eyes that had looked on transcosmic gulfs. As the afternoon advanced, it became increasingly difficult to see, and we heard the rumble of a thunderstorm gathering over Tempest Mountain. This sound, in such a locality, naturally stirred us, though less than it would have done at night. As it was, we hoped desperately that the storm would last until well after dark, and with that hope, turned from our aimless hillside searching toward the nearest inhabited hamlet to gather a body of squatters as helpers in the investigation. Timid as they were, a few of the younger men were sufficiently inspired by our protective leadership to promise such help. We had hardly more than turned, however, when there descended such a blinding sheet of torrential rain that shelter became an imperative. The extreme, almost nocturnal darkness of the sky caused us to stumble sadly, but guided by the frequent flashes of lightning and by our minute knowledge of the hamlet, we soon reached the least porous cabin of the lot, a heterogeneous combination of logs and boards whose still-existing door and single tiny window both faced Maple Hill. Barring the door after us against the fury of the wind and rain, we put in place 
the crude window shutter, which our frequent searches had taught us where to find. It was dismal sitting there, on rickety boxes, in the pitchy darkness, but we smoked pipes and occasionally flashed our pocket lamps about. Now and then we could see the lightning through the cracks in the wall. The afternoon was so incredibly dark that each flash was extremely vivid. The stormy vigil reminded me shudderingly of my ghastly night on Tempest Mountain. My mind turned to that odd question which kept recurring ever since the nightmare thing had happened, and again I wondered why the demon, approaching the three watchers, either from the window or the interior, had begun with the men on each side and left the middleman till the last, when the titan fireball had scared it away. Why had it not taken its victims in natural order, with myself second, from whichever direction it had approached? With what manner of far-reaching tentacles did it pray, or did it know that I was the leader, and save me for a fate worse than that of my companions? In the midst of these reflections, as if dramatically arranged to intensify them, there fell nearby a terrific bolt of lightning followed by the sound of sliding earth. At the same time the wolfish wind rose to demoniac crescendos of ululation. We were sure that the lone tree on Maple Hill had been struck again, and Monroe rose from his box and went to the tiny window to ascertain the damage. When he took down the shutter, the wind and rain howled deafeningly in, so that I could not hear what he said, but I waited while he leaned out and tried to fathom nature's pandemonium. Gradually a calming of the wind and dispersal of the unusual darkness told us of the storm's passing. I had hoped it would last into the night to help our quest, but a furative sunbeam from a knothole behind me removed the likelihood of such a thing, suggesting to Monroe that we had better get some light, even if more showers came, I unbarred and opened the crude door. The ground outside was a singular mass of mud and pools, with fresh heaps of earth from the slight landscape, but I saw nothing to justify the interest which kept my companion silently leaning on the window. Crossing to where he leaned, I touched his shoulder, but he did not move. Then, as I playfully shook him and turned him around, I felt the strangling tendrils of a cancerous horror whose roots reached into illimitable pasts and fathomless abysses of the night that broods beyond time. For Arthur Monroe was dead, and on what remained of his chewed and gouged head, there was no longer a face. 3. What the Red Glare Meant On the tempest-wrecked night of November the 8th, 1921, with the lantern which cast charnel shadows, I stood digging alone and idiotically in the grave of Jan Martens. I had begun to dig in the afternoon, because a thunderstorm was brewing, and now that it was dark, and the storm had burst above the maniacally thick foliage, I was glad. I believe that my mind was partly unhinged by events since August the 5th, the demon shadow in the mansion, the general strain and disappointment, and the thing that occurred at the hamlet in the October storm. After that thing, I had dug a grave for one whose death I could not understand. I knew that others could not understand either, so let them think that Arthur Monroe had wandered away. They searched but found nothing. The squatters might have understood, but I dared not frighten them more. I myself seemed strangely callous. That shock at the mansion had done something to my brain, and I could think only of the quest for a horror now grown to cataclysmic stature in my imagination, a quest which the fate of Arthur Monroe 
made me vow to keep silent and solitary. The scene of my excavations would alone have been enough to unnerve any ordinary man. Baleful primal trees of unholy size, age, and grotesqueness leered above me like the pillars of some hellish druidic temple, muffling the thunder, hushing the clawing wind, and admitting but little rain. Beyond the scarred trunks in the background, illumined by faint flashes of filtered lightning, rose the damp, ivied stones of the deserted mansion, while somewhat nearer was the abandoned Dutch garden whose walks and beds were polluted by a white, fungus-fetid, overnourished vegetation that never saw full daylight. And nearest of all was the graveyard, where deformed trees tossed insane branches as their roots displaced unhollowed slabs and sucked venom from what lay below. Now and then, beneath the brown pall of leaves that rotted and festered in the antediluvian forest darkness, I could trace the sinister outlines of some of those low mounds which characterized the lightning-pierced region. History had led me to this archaic grave. History, indeed, was all I had after everything else ended in mocking Satanism. I now believed that the lurking fear was no material thing, but a wolf-fanged ghost that rode the midnight lightning, and I believed, because of the masses of local tradition, I had un unearthed in my search with Arthur Monroe that the ghost was that of Jan Martens, who died in 1762. That is why I was digging idiotically in his grave. The Martens mansion was built in 1670 by Garrett Martens, a wealthy New Amsterdam merchant who disliked the changing order under British rule and had constructed this magnificent domicile on a remote woodland summit whose untrodden solitude and unusual scenery pleased him. The only substantial disappointment encountered in this site was that which concerned the prevalence of violent thunderstorms in summer. When selecting the hill and building his mansion, Mahir Martens had laid these frequent natural outbursts to some peculiarity of the year, but in time he perceived that the locality was especially liable to such phenomena. At length, having found these storms injurious to his health, he fitted up a cellar in which he could retreat from their wildest pandemonium. Of Garrett Martens's descendants, less is known than of himself, since they were all reared in hatred of the English civilization, and trained to shun such of the colonists as accepted it. Their speech was exceedingly secluded, and people declared that their isolation had made them heavy of speech and comprehension. In appearance, all were marked by a peculiar inherited dissimilarity of eyes, one generally being blue and the other brown. Their social contacts grew fewer and fewer, till at last they took to intermarrying with the numerous menial class about the estate. Many of the crowded family degenerated, moving across the valley and merged with the mongrel population, which was later to produce the pitiful squatters. The rest had stuck sullenly to their ancestral mansion, becoming more and more clannish and taciturn, yet developing a nervous responsiveness to the frequent thunderstorms. Most of this information reached the outside world through young Jan Martens, who, from some kind of restlessness, joined the colonial army when news of the Albany Convention reached Tempest Mountain. He was the first of Garrett's descendants to see much of the world and when he returned in 1760, after six years of campaigning, he was hated as an outsider by his father, uncles, and brothers, 
in spite of his dissimilar Martin size. No longer could he share the peculiarities and prejudices of the Martenses, while the very mountain thunderstorms failed to intoxicate him as they had before. Instead, his surroundings depressed him, and he frequently wrote to a friend in Albany of plans to leave the paternal roof. In the spring of 1763, Jonathan Gifford, the Albany friend of Jan Martens, became worried by his correspondent's silence, especially in view of the conditions and quarrels at the Martens mansion. Determined to visit Jan in person, he went into the mountains on horseback. His diary states that he reached Tempest Mountain on September the 20th, finding the mansion in great decrepitude. The sullen, odd-eyed Martenses, whose unclean animal aspect shocked him, told him, in broken gutturals, that Jan was dead. He had, they insisted, been struck by lightning the autumn before, and now lay buried behind the neglected, sunken gardens. They showed the visitor the grave, barren and devoid of markers. Something in the Martenses' manner gave Gifford a feeling of repulsion and suspicion, and a week later he returned with spade and mattock to explore the sepulchral spot. He found what he had expected, a skull crushed cruelly, as if by savage blows. So returning to Albany, he openly charged the Martenses with the murder of their kinsmen. Legal evidence was lacking, but the story spread rapidly round the countryside, and from that time the Martenses were ostracized by the world. No one would deal with them, and their distant manor was shunned as an accursed place. Somehow they managed to live on independently by the products of their estate, for occasional lights glimpsed from faraway hills attested their continued presence. These lights were seen as late as 1810, but toward the last they became very infrequent. Meanwhile, there grew up about the mansion and the mountain a body of diabolic mystery. The place was avoided with doubled assiduousness and invested with every whispered myth tradition could supply. It remained unvisited till 1816, when the continued absence of lights was noticed by the squatters. At that time, a party made investigations, finding the house deserted and partly in ruins. There were no skeletons about, so that departure rather than death was inferred. The clan seemed to have left several years before, and improvised penthouses showed how numerous it had been prior to its migration. Its cultural level had fallen very low, as proved by decaying furniture and scattered silverware, which must have been long abandoned when its owners left. But though the dreaded Martenses were gone, the fear of the haunted house continued, and grew very acute when new and strange stories arose among the mountain decadents. There it stood, deserted, feared, and linked with the vengeful ghost of Jan Martens. There it still stood on the night I dug in Jan Martens's grave. I have described my protracted digging as idiotic, and such it indeed was in object and method. The coffin of Jan Martens had soon been unearthed. It now held only dust and nitre, but in my fury to exhume his ghost, I delved irrationally and clumsily down beneath where it had lain. God knows what I expected to find. I only felt that I was digging in the grave of a man whose ghost stalked by night. It is impossible to say what monstrous depth I had attained when my spade, and soon my feet, broke through the ground beneath. The event, under the circumstances, was tremendous, for in the existence of a subterranean space here, 
My mad theories had terrible confirmation. My slight fall had extinguished the lantern, but I produced an electric pocket lamp and viewed the small, horizontal tunnel which led away indefinitely in both directions. It was amply large enough for a man to wriggle through, and though no sane person would have tried it at that time, I forgot danger, reason, and cleanliness in my single-minded fever to unearth the lurking fear. Choosing the direction toward the house, I scrambled recklessly into the narrow burrow, squirming ahead blindly and rapidly, and flashing, but seldom, the lamp I kept before me. What language can describe the spectacle of a man lost in infinitely abysmal earth, pawing, twisting, wheezing, scrambling, madly through the sunk sunken convolutions of immemorial blackness without an idea of time, safety, direction, or definite object. There is something hideous in it, but that is what I did. I did it for so long that life faded to a far memory, and I became one with the moles and the grubs of nighted depths. Indeed, it was only by accident that after interminable writhings I jarred my forgotten electric lamp alight, so that it shone eerily along the burrow of caked loam that stretched and curved ahead. I had been scrambling in this way for some time, so that my battery had burned very low, when the passage suddenly inclined sharply upward, alerting my mode of progress, and as I raised my glance, it was without preparation that I saw glistening in the distance two demoniac reflections of my expiring lamp, two reflections glowing with a baneful and unmistakable effulgence, and provoking maddeningly nebulous memories, I stopped automatically, though lacking the brain to retreat. The eyes approached, yet of the thing that bore them I could distinguish only a claw, but what a claw! Then far overhead I heard a faint crashing, which I recognized. It was the wild thunder of the mountain, raised to histic fury. I must have been crawling upward for some time, so that the surface was now quite near. And as the muffled thunder clattered, those eyes still stared with vicious viciousness. Thank God I did not then know what it was, else I should have died. But I was saved by the very thunder that had summoned it. For after a hideous wait, there burst from the unseen outside sky one of those frequent mountainward bolts whose aftermath I had noticed here and there as gashes of disturbed earth and fulgurites of various sizes. With cyclopean rage, it tore through the soil above that damnable pit, blinding and deafening me, yet not wholly reducing me to a coma. In the chaos of sliding, shifting earth, I clawed and floundered helplessly till the rain on my head steadied me, and I saw that I had come to the surface in a familiar spot, a steep, unforested place on the southwest slope of the mountain. Recurrent sheet lightnings illuminated the tumbled ground and the remains of the curious low hummocks which had stretched down from the wooded higher slope. But there was nothing in the chaos to shoot my place of egress from the lethal catacomb. My brain was as great a chaos as the earth, and as a distant red glare burst on the landscape from the south, I hardly realized the horror I had been through. But when two days later the squatters told me what the red glare meant, I felt more horror than that which the mold burrow and the claw and the eyes had given, more horror because of the overwhelming implications. In a hamlet twenty miles away, an orgy of fear had followed the bolt which brought me above ground, 
and a nameless thing had dropped from an overhanging tree into a weak roof cabin. It had done a deed, but the squatters had fired the cabin in frenzy before it could escape. It had been doing that deed at the very moment the earth caved in on the thing with the claw and the eyes. 4. The Horror in the Eyes There can be nothing normal in the mind of one who, knowing what I knew of the horrors of Tempest Mountain, would seek alone for the fear that lurked there. That at least two of the fear's embodiments were destroyed, formed by a slight guarantee of mental and physical safety in the acheron of multiform diabolism, yet I continued my quest with even greater zeal as events and revelations became yet more monstrous. When two days after my frightful crawl through the crypt of the eyes and claw, I learned that a thing had malignly hovered twenty miles away at the same instant the eyes were glaring at me, I experienced virtual convulsions of fright. But that fright was so mixed with wonder and alluring grotesqueness that it was almost a pleasant sensation. Sometimes in the throes of a nightmare, when unseen powers whirl one over the roofs of strange dead cities toward the grinning chasm of Nis, it is a relief and even a delight to shriek wildly and throw oneself voluntarily along with the hideous vortex of dream doom into whatever bottomless gulf may yawn. And so it was with the waking nightmare of Tempest Mountain. The discovery that two monsters had haunted the spot gave me ultimately a mad craving to plunge into the very earth of the accursed region and with bare hands dig out the death that leered from every inch of the poisonous soil. As soon as possible, I visited the grave of Jan Martens and dug vainly where I had dug before. Some extensive cave-in had obliterated all trace of the underground passage, while the rain had washed so much earth back into the excavation that I could not tell how deeply I had dug the other day. I likewise made a difficult trip to the distant hamlet where the death creature had been burnt, and was little repaid for my trouble. In the ashes of the fateful cabin I found several bones, but apparently none of the monsters. The squatters said the thing had only one victim, but in this I judged them inaccurate, since besides the complete skull of a human being, there was another bony fragment which seemed certainly to have belonged to a human skull at some time. Though the rapid drop of the monster had been seen, no one could say just what the creature was like. Those who had glimpsed it called it simply a devil, examining the great tree where it had lurked. I could discern no distinctive marks. I tried to find some trail into the black forest, but on this occasion could not stand the sight of those morbidly large bowls, or those vast serpent-like roots that twisted so malevolently before they sank into the earth. My next step was to re-examine with microscopic care the deserted hamlet where death had come most abundantly, and where Arthur Monroe had seen something he never lived to describe. Though my vain previous searches had been exceedingly minute, I now had new data to test, for my horrible grave crawl convinced me that at least one of the phases of the monstrosity had been an underground creature. This time, on the 14th of November, my quest concerned itself mostly with the slopes of Cone Mountain and Maple Hill, where they overlooked the unfortunate hamlet, and I gave particular attention to the loose earth of the landslide region on the latter eminence. The afternoon of my search brought nothing to light, and dusk came as I stood on Maple Hill, 
looking down at the hamlet and across the valley to Tempest Mountain. There had been a gorgeous sunset, and now the moon came up, nearly full and shedding a silver flood over the plain, the distant mountainside, and the curious low mounds that rose here and there. It was a peaceful Arcadian scene, but knowing what it hid, I hated it. I hated the mocking moon, the hypocritical plain, the festering mountain, and those sinister mounds. Everything seemed to me tainted with a loathsome contagion and inspired by a noxious alliance with distorted, hidden powers. Presently, as I gazed abstractly at the moonlit panorama, my eye became attracted by something singular in the nature and arrangement of a certain topographical element. Without having any exact knowledge of geology, I had, from the first, been interested in the odd mounds and hummocks of the region. I had noticed that they were pretty widely distributed around Tempest Mountain, though less numerous on the plain than near the hilltop itself, where prehistoric glaciation had doubtless found feebler opposition to its striking and fantastic caprices. Now in the light of that low moon which cast low, weird shadows, it struck me forcibly that the various points and lines of the mound system had a peculiar relation to the summit of Tempest Mountain. That summit was undeniably a center from which the lines or rows of points radiated indefinitely and irregularly, as if the unwholesome Martens Mansion had thrown visible tentacles of terror. The idea of such tentacles gave me an unexplained thrill, and I stopped to analyze my reason for believing these mounds glacial phenomena. The more I analyzed, the less I believed, and against my newly opened mind there began to beat grotesque and horrible analogies based on superficial aspects and upon my experience beneath the earth. Before I knew it, I was utteringly, uttering frenzied and disjointed words to myself. My God! Molehills! The damn place must be honeycombed! How many? That night at the mansion, they took Bennett and Toby first, on each side of us. Then I was digging frantically into the mound which had stretched nearest me, digging desperately, shiveringly, but almost jubilantly, digging and at last shrieking aloud with some unplaced emotion as I came upon a tunnel or burrow just like the one through which I had crawled on that other demoniac night. After that I recall running, spade in hand, a hideous run across moonlitten, mound-marked meadows and through diseased, precipitous abysses of haunted hillside forest, leaping, screaming, panting, bounding toward the terrible Martens mansion. I recall digging unreasoningly in all parts of the briar choke cellar, digging to find the core and center of that malignant universe of mounds. And then I recall how I laughed when I stumbled on the passageway, the hole at the base of the old chimney, where the thick weeds grew and cast queer shadows in the light of the lone candle I had happened to have with me. What still remained down in that hell hive, lurking and waiting for the thunder to arouse it, I did not know. Two had been killed, perhaps that had finished it, but still there remained that burning determination to reach the innermost secret of the fear, which I had once more come to deem definite, material, and organic. My indecisive speculation, whether to explore the passage alone, and immediately with my pocket light, or to try to assemble a band of squatters for the quest, was interrupted after a time 
by a sudden rush of wind from outside, which blew out the candle and left me in stark blackness. The moon no longer shone through the chinks and apertures above me, and with a sense of fateful alarm, I heard the sinister and significant rumble of approaching thunder. A confusion of associated ideas possessed my brain, leading me to grope back toward the furthest corner of the cellar. My eyes, however, never turned away from the horrible opening at the base of the chimney, and I began to get glimpses of the crumbling bricks and unhealthy weeds as faint glows of lightning penetrated the woods outside and illumined the chinks in the upper wall. Every second I was consumed with a mixture of fear and curiosity. What would the storm call forth? Or was there anything left for it to call? Guided by a lightning flash, I settled myself down behind a dense clump of vegetation through which I could see the opening without being seen. If heaven is merciful, it will some day efface from my consciousness the sight that I saw, and let me live my last years in peace. I cannot sleep at night now, and have to take opiates when it thunders. The thing came abruptly, and unannounced, a demon, rat-like scurrying from pits remote and unimaginable, a hellish panting and stifling grunting, and then, from that opening, beneath the chimney, a burst of multitudinous and leprous life, a loathsome night-spawned flood of organic corruption more devastatingly hideous than the blackest conjurations of mortal madness and morbidity. Seething, stewing, surging, bubbling like serpent slime, it rolled up and out of that yawning hole, spreading like a septic contagion and steaming from the cellar at every point of egress, streaming out to scatter through the accursed midnight force and strew fear, madness, and death. God knows how many there were. There must have been thousands. To see the stream of them in that faint, intermittent lightning was shocking. When they had thinned out enough to be glimpsed as separate organisms, I saw that they were dwarfed, deformed, hairy devils, or apes, monstrous and diabolical caricatures of the monkey tribe. They were so hideously silent. There was hardly a squeal when one of the last stragglers turned with the skill of long practice to make a meal in a custom fashion on a weaker companion. Others snapped up what it left and ate with slavering relish. Then, in spite of my days of fright and disgust, my morbid curiosity triumphed, and as the last of the monstrosities oozed up alone from that netherworld of unknown nightmare, I drew my automatic pistol and shot it under cover of the thunder. Shrieking, slithering, torrential shadows of red, viscous madness, chasing one another through endless, ensanguined corridors of purple, fulgurous sky, formless phantasms, and kaleidoscopic mutations of a ghoulish remembered scene, forests of monstrous overnourished oaks with serpent roots twisting and sucking unnameable juices from the earth, verminous with millions of cannibal devils, mound-like tentacles groping from underground nuclei of polypus perversion, insane lightning over malignant ivied walls and demon arcades choked with fungus vegetation. Heaven be thanked for the instinct which led me unconscious to places where men dwell, to the peaceful village that slept under the calm stars of clearing skies. I had recovered enough in a week to send to Albany for a gang of men to blow up the Martens mansion and the entire top of Tempest Mountain with dynamite, 
stop up all the discoverable mound burrows, and destroy certain overnourished trees whose very existence seemed an insult to sanity. I could sleep a little after they had done this, but true rest will never come as long as I remember that nameless secret of the lurking fear. The thing will haunt me, for who can say the extermination is complete, and that analogous phenomena do not exist all over the world? Who can, with my knowledge, think of the Earth's unknown caverns without a nightmare dread of future possibilities? I cannot see a well or a subway entrance without shuddering. Why cannot the doctors give me something to make me sleep, or truly calm my brain when it thunders? What I saw in the glow of my flashlight, after I shot the unspeakable straggling object, was so simple that almost a minute elapsed before I understood and went delirious. The object was nauseous, a filthy, whitish gorilla thing, with sharp, yellow fangs and matted fur. It was the ultimate product of mammalian degeneration, the frightful outcome of isolated spawning, multiplication, and cannibal nutrition above and below the ground, the embodiment of all the snarling chaos and grinning fear that lurked behind life. It had looked at me as it died, and its eyes had the same odd quality that marked those other eyes which had stared at me underground and excited cloudy recollections. One eye was blue, the other was brown. They were the dissimilar Martens eyes of the old legends, and I knew in one inundating cataclysm of voiceless horror what had become of that vanished family, the terrible and thunder-crazed House of Martens. Well, folks, I hope that you enjoyed that story. It's one of my favorites from H.P. Lovecraft, and I hope that you have a great week, and I'll talk to you next week. Take care.